Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily, your Premier League podcast from the Sports Social team. Every day of the week, every single day of the Premier League season, a brand new podcast for you. And we've hit the middle of the week, but the football does not stop. Champions League action tonight to discuss because last night, Chelsea and Manchester City were both in action. It went better for one side than the other. And of course, Tottenham and Liverpool taking on their respective European opponents this evening. We'll get stuck into that very shortly. And we'll also be asking, what's so bad about Wolverhampton? Julen Lopetegui was in line to take on the vacant Wolves job. He's decided that Wolves wasn't for him. We'll get into that shortly as well. Welcome along to the show. My name's Niall and joining me in the studio today, we've got Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. How are you doing, boys? Doing very well. Not too bad at all. Very good. We're just riding the wave of the the terrible Manchester weather today, bringing some life to your station. You've been... (laughs) That's quite that's a nice a snazzy radio that was station. Like old school garage. I thought I was gone back in time there. I was thinking more crap hospital radio. <laughs> Come on, mate, let's see. Makes you want to makes you want to recover quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to talk about football. That's what we're here for. Don't forget if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast again. And the place we're going to start is actually at Wolverhampton Wanderers, who are currently managerless after they sacked Bruno Large a couple of weeks ago following a pretty indifferent start to the top flight season they're still on the hunt for a new manager and there have been some names in discussions in the frame one of them was uh, Ruben Amorim from the Portuguese club Sporting Lisbon and it's pretty obvious that Wolves are going to be linked with a Portuguese manager at one stage or another in this hunt for a new boss that hasn't materialised the other name that was pretty much leading the way was Julen Lopetegui the former Spain and Sevilla manager who recently left his job But he's turned the job down and that's the big news, that the fact that he's decided he doesn't want to work for Wolverhampton Wanderers. And we often say, Joel, don't we, that the Premier League is the promised land and why wouldn't people, whether that be players, coaches or otherwise, want to come to England and try their hand in the most difficult league, the best league in the world? Julien Lopetegui has had the, the guts, I suppose, and the bravery to stand there and say, no, it isn't for me and I don't want the job. Well, the money talks, doesn't it, when it comes to the Premier League? I think... It doesn't matter what kind of stature you are as a manager or how big of a reputation you bring. It doesn't even matter how talented you are. When the Premier League clubs, no matter how small or big, come come calling for you, it seems like it's just a a one-way street. That's why I was really worried in case Ruben Amorin ended up going to Wolves. Obviously, they've got that massive Portuguese link, which kind of makes things a little bit easier. It seems like George Mendes is the puppeteer of that club. But with Julian Lopetegui... He's such a talented manager. I'm so surprised at how his Sevilla side have gone so far this season in the table, where last season they were such a strong top four contender. They were at one point going for La Liga, just fell short to Real Madrid, who just kind of stormed the way into the title. But now they find themselves in 18th position in La Liga, which is just unheard of for Sevilla. They've been such a strong contender for probably like the last decade, I would say, in La Liga. And now they've won one game in eight. And it's a pretty strange scenario they found themselves in. I'm just wondering if the last five, six years of consistently selling their best players and not really revamping the squad has made a bit of a dent in their team because one of the main reasons why they were so good was because Monkey, the sporting director, ended up basically producing an absolutely world-class talent 
recruitment system. He went to Roma, didn't perform there, went back to Sevilla again, and he's just not really hit the ground running again. I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons why, but I'm surprised that he's turned Wolves down just because they have pretty wealthy owners and they have a system in place that could potentially mm. allow him to go on with Wolves. But it's, it's surprising and Wolves at the moment find themselves in a position where they've just not got enough contenders for the job. I don't really know who I would pick as the standout choice. It's a good point and they're third from bottom as well. But according to Lopetegui, it's a decision made due to a conflict between professional and personal life. I think his father is actually quite unwell at the moment. And he says it's a heartfelt no to Wolves because the personal and professional timing did not coincide. That's according to Spanish football journalist Guillaume Balaguer. Apparently he spoke to Wolves in 2016, Marley, and didn't get the job on that occasion because he went on to manage Spain and that worked out rather strangely for him, I think, if, if I remember rightly. But how much well, for... Bl- who, who talks to Wolves and then ends up as Spain manager a couple of weeks later? That's, <laughs> that's bizarre, man. But he didn't last long at Spain, did he? I think He, he, was... he got sacked on the eve of the World Cup, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he, he did. For, for, for saying Madrid, he was going to be Real Madrid yeah. manager. And, and then, then he didn't get then, that job. <laughs> no, he got it and then they binned him off. Dead, yeah. dead quick. Was it, oh, was it? So, so, he's so certainly yeah. been, he's certainly been in the news more than once over the last few years. But how damaging is the fact that he's rejected Wolves here? Because if you look at how they've started, they've... They've been poor in terms of results, Marley, and their next game at the weekend is against Nottingham Forest, which is absolutely massive yeah, big for game. both clubs. Yeah, big game that. Um, I think with, to be fair, if you think of, of Lopetegui and, and what he's done in the game, you look at his his sort of uh, his CV, if you like, and uh, he's managed some huge, huge jobs. You know, he's uh, he's been Sevilla manager, he's been Real Madrid manager, he's been Spain manager. With him being linked to Wolves, I get... Um, I get the the same feeling as I did when Ancelotti went to uh, Everton. I think he's too big for the club. I don't think he would be there for for long term. I think if uh, a big job in Spain came up, like a top six job in Spain, they would instantly look towards him because of his experience and particularly his experience in um, in the Spanish league. I know he's done a. Um, you know his, his time at Sevilla's ended pretty poorly, but in fairness, they, they did sell Diego Carlos and Jules Koundé and didn't really replace them with uh, with similar level players. So, um, yes, it's ended badly, but he's got that like bank of of previous experience from managing, you know, Porto, Spain, Real Madrid, Sevilla. There, his last four jobs, Wolves. On the back of that, is a, is a step down, and I don't really care if Wolves fans are going, oh well, you know, he's not going to get back to the top, like. He'll still fancy himself to get a better job than Wolves. So with this not working out, I don't think it's uh, necessarily the worst thing because I think Wolves would be better off with a young, hungry manager who wants to improve uh, Wolverhampton rather than use him as a stepping stone to bigger and better things because, uh, or, or like a stopgap. I think that's what Lopetegui would have done. Even though he's got the experience and stuff, I don't think he was uh, a particularly long-term choice. But they move on and they've got to go for someone else. And I'm, I'm looking at the odds now and the mm. the odds on, well, not the odds on at all, but the the, uh, the, the clear, clear, clear favourite is Pedro Martins, who yeah. last week was going to take over Hull City. And then this week is his uh, manager, favourite for the manager's job at, uh, at Wolves. So that's, um, that's, for me, seems right. Yeah. I think he's, uh, you know, we don't know too much about him. He, he did... Well enough at Olympiacos last, uh, I think he left in like August time. Um, probably 
hoped he would get a, a big job somewhere else. Clearly, um, desperation almost set in with him going to Hull City, but he looked around the training ground and decided it wasn't for him, and then he's uh, he's, he's close to the Wolves job now. So that, that seemed to fit a little bit more for me. Um, yeah. I thought it was too much of a step down for Ruben Amarim uh, as well. And you look at some of the other names on the on the uh, the odds list, Bo Svensson and Andre Villas-Boas are the Yeah, are the some of the team, names so. we've spoken about before, like yeah, Villas-Boas and yeah. Deitch and even Nuno Espirito Santos on there. And I mean, Postecoglou, the the Celtic managers on there. So there's there's Deitch, names on there, Deitch, but man, sixteen to one for Deitch. Like, but, I, but I, what I, do Wolves need? Do they need a young progressive manager, or do they need yeah. someone who can keep them up right now? Because we're still it's, pretty early in the Premier League season. Des- it's not desperate where you start ringing Deitch. No. You ring Deitch with fifteen, well, twelve. Is he the new Sam Twelve games. Yeah, is that unfair on Sean Deitch almost? No, because he's not done anything else in his career. Other than keep teams up on a budget, and I know he, well, he keep need... a team up. Burnley, well, it's the only opportunity he's had. Is. Yeah, but he needs like, is I think with Deitch is in a catch twenty two situation because he needs to, he needs the opportunity to prove that he can work with a bigger budget and sign good players and play a better football. But because he stayed at Burnley for so long, he's he's just like boxed himself into that position where everyone will see four four two, two big men up front, lump it in the channels and see what happens. And that's not attractive to to, to clubs with budget because clubs with budget want to play nice football, high-pressing, modern, short-passing, all the rest of it. And he's not done that. So he's kind of um, pigeonholing himself into this type of thing. Yeah, I think that Sean Dyche, we will see him back in the Premier League soon, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be at Wolverhampton Wanderers as the hunt goes on for them at Molyneux to find... A new boss, will they, by the weekend, which seems very unlikely, going into that massive game with Nottingham Forest, have a new man at the helm? We'll wait and see. And we'll keep you up to date, of course, on Football Social Daily with any news regarding that one. We're going to move on next here on the podcast and talk about the Champions League because there were two games last night involving Premier League clubs and two games tonight as well. We'll talk about it next after this. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily and every midweek between now and the World Cup, which is only a matter of weeks away, there will be European football. And that was the case last night as well for Manchester City, who went to Copenhagen And we said that it would be likely that they would turn over Copenhagen in their own backyard. But it finished goalless in the end. There was a controversial VAR decision as well, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But the statistics say that Copenhagen have only lost once at home in their last 13 Champions League group stage games going into this. And that was against Real Madrid in 2013-14, Joel. And Real Madrid went on to win the tournament. And despite the fact City hammered Copenhagen at Don't the Etihad, 5-0 last week. <laughs> Don't do right? it, Niall. It was nil-nil <laughs> this time around. So the stats were pretty accurate on this occasion. What did you make of City's showing last night? Well, I think first and foremost, it just shows how much depth they have because he managed to bench Haaland, Bernardo Silva, um, Kev- or Kevin De Bruyne went off pretty soon after half-time. He just has so much depth in that squad that his second team could probably challenge for all fronts if they needed to. And that's a problem for the rest of Europe, really, because it just shows that everyone's going on about if Haaland has an injury, if he has this, he has that. Quite frankly, it doesn't even matter because let's not forget the last four seasons where they won 
two trophies for the last two seasons where they won back-to-back trophies. They didn't have an out-and-out striker whatsoever. The only one was Gabriel Jesus, and he was the guy who was coming off the bench mm. and wasn't really the main guy. He's only just done that at Arsenal now. Um, so I don't think that's a major issue for them. I'm sure Haaland's pretty disappointed that he couldn't stat pad his way in a Copenhagen game. Well, that's game what we said yesterday. We said, yeah. when is Pep going to rest Haaland? Because he might have to at some point, and he chose last night. And it was probably the perfect occasion. I think if they weren't playing the likes of Liverpool at the weekend, I think he would have given him a run out and just said, let's try and continue on that record that you've got going on. But yeah, with City, it was just it was just a win-win situation in that game because they're already pretty much home and dry, apart from the fact that if they don't get a result at Dortmund, it could potentially mean that they finish second, which would be a bit of a... Not a nightmare situation, but it's one that they're in control of and they shouldn't have to do it that way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I think everyone expected a pretty second fit City side. I'm sure Haaland is absolutely gutted he didn't get to play. Well, it finished nil-nil in the end, but all the action was in the first half an hour. Marley, Rodri had a goal disallowed for handball by VAR, which some are saying is the wrong decision. That was after 11 minutes. After 25 minutes, Riyad Mahrez... Is back to his old tricks of not being able to stick the ball away from 12 yards, which we know City have had issues with over the years. I think when you think of Mares from the penalty spot, you think of the one he ballooned against Liverpool a couple of seasons ago. And then uh, Sergio Gomez got sent off after half an hour to take City down to 10 men. So there was plenty going on in that first half an hour. Um, can you see why City fans are a little bit frustrated with, with how things unfolded? Or Well, yeah, obviously it's frustrating, especially when you're... Uh... You know, you can't score penalties, which has haunted Man City for years now. I mean, only... I mean, Haaland took the last one, didn't he, in the league? Um, but the amount of penalties misses they've had over the years is, is staggering. Um, mm. No one can seem to do it. Mahrez is the worst culprit of them. Um, you've always confident he's going to miss rather than score, which is strange. Um, but they've tried everyone, haven't they? They've tried Mahrez, they've tried much. Gundogan, they've tried Sterling and... And Jesus, when they were both there, and they've all had a go and they've all missed. I mean, De Bruyne... I think De Bruyne's missed, a, missed one missed or two as well, as well but yeah. I'd still go back to De Bruyne because I think if you give him 10 penalties, he probably scored nine. just yeah. happens to be yeah, yeah. the one that we remember because it was the last time he took one, he missed it or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, Haaland's probably the number one taker now and now he's uh, if he's on the pitch. Um, obviously, last night he wasn't. Um, the Gomez thing... I don't really think you can argue too much about that. I think with him being last man and, and no one covering him, I think he was always going to get sent off in that situation. But it's yeah, it was just one of them frustrating nights for Man City. But it's you know it's nil nil in Copenhagen in the group stage. Of, you know it's it's hardly mm. panic stations. It's not really. I mean they'll, they'll forgot about it already. Um, and they've and got a good record. The, the the Danes against English clubs actually they've got a pretty good record, especially yeah. at home. Like. I think that it's one of those stadiums where you just think it's going to be a run-of-the-mill European boxy yeah. small little stadium, but it's actually no, it's... quite imposing from the outside and the intimidating factor from the inside, from the fans. I saw yeah. a video of them all sort of posnanning, bouncing, and looked really impressive, and you can understand why it would be difficult to win there. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice uh, nice stadium. Lovely city, Copenhagen as well, isn't it? So as the way days goes, it's, uh, it's not a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no goals and no points to celebrate. Uh, no three points, I should say, for Manchester City in the group stage. They'll just have to settle for the one with a goalless draw. Things were much more comfortable for Chelsea, Joel. They won 2-0 away at the San Siro against AC Milan. We said yesterday on the podcast, this is an important game in the way that it could swing the group. And if you look at the standings now, Chelsea have gone top of the group 
in the Champions League Group E on seven points when they were third going into the game at the start of the day. So considering the results elsewhere have gone their way and they got the job done, they'll be pretty pleased. But talking of controversial decisions and red cards, like Marley said, you can't really argue with the Gomez uh, red card. A lot of people will be arguing about a former Chelsea player, Fikayo Tomori, who got sent off for AC Milan for what looked like a pretty soft one, if you ask most people. This is not even an exaggeration when I say that is one of the worst red card decisions I've seen in the last decade. Anyone who's not seen it, go and watch it. And just prior to the referee giving the red card, every single Chelsea player, I think the last thing, the first thing we're thinking is it a penalty. A red card though, he literally, they were just basically man to man, body to body. And Tamari got on the wrong side of Mount. It's a typical foul. It doesn't warrant a red card. I, I want to It's not to a see... penalty, let alone a red card. See like... how soft it was. It was unbelievably soft. Um, so I think Milan got really hard done by in this one because it was in, what, the 20th minute and then they were fighting mm. against the wind for the rest of that game. Um, so yeah, Chelsea got a massive amount of fortune, but then on the other hand, a big amount of disfortune, which is um, Reese James's injury, mm. which they're thinking could be an ACL injury, but they're not sure whether it is or not at the moment because obviously you need to let swelling come down to see the extent of the injury. That could be a massive blow, not only for Chelsea, but for England because... It's funny how there was such a great amount of right-backs to choose from. And now it suddenly looks like Aaron Wan-Bissaka might be called upon at this rate. Because yeah, you've got... Only, um, you're still Kieran Trippier. You've still... Because you, you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's injured. Rhys James is injured. Kyle Walker is out probably after the World Cup. So now, looking at who could potentially come in. Matty Cash is currently burning his Polish uh, passport. He's just received a <laughs> he played a Has he played a, a qualified yeah. game? Yeah, yeah he has. He's yeah. stuck. Um, yeah, he's knackered. Yeah, but that game, like we said yesterday, I said it was like a pendulum game that if yeah. Milan would have got the result, pressure would have been on Chelsea. But now Chelsea won three games in a row, um, not conceding any of them. They're doing really well now yeah, under Graham Potter. Potter undefeated so far. Yeah, exactly. So I think he's really starting to find his feet now. Um, trying to, He's found... His formula for what kind of players he wants, what wants to fit his system. I think he was still tinkering it in that first couple of games, but now um, it's starting to show a little bit more. And I think as the season goes on, Chelsea will become quickly a fan favourite team to watch because as we saw with that Brighton team, it was really attractive football. Well, Aubameyang got the second Chelsea goal on 34 minutes. It did finish 2-0. Obviously, the Rosaneri were down to 10 men with uh, Fikayo Tomori's red card. But Mason Mount was the one who got beyond Tamori, and even though it probably wasn't a red card, he was the one that caused the problem. He got the assist for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's goal to make it more comfortable for Chelsea Marley. And we've spoken about Mason Mount on this podcast before and some of the stick he gets for not turning up in the big games. There's this record he's got at Wembley where he's played there seven, eight times and never won a match or something like that. So even though this wasn't a big game in terms of the stature of the game, it wasn't a semi-final or a final or anything like that, it was a big game, though, in the group stages of the Champions League against an iconic opponent in an iconic stadium. So I guess that would have done him some good and a bit of a two fingers to the critics as if to say, you say I can't do it in the big games? Well, here I am. Yeah, and uh, he scored an absolute banger in the last game as well, didn't he? Against, uh, uh, f- sorry, recently for England when he swept that in against Germany. So yeah, I think, I don't know what it is with Mount, why he, he seems to attract stick very, very easily. Um, I know there's there's midfielders out there that are doing bigger numbers and stuff but I, I do think Mount is um, a quality player in whatever side he's in he, he, I think he makes the side better I think he's very tactically aware and can play a, a couple of positions pretty well um, number 10, number 8 sort of thing 
Um, I think he can do that well. So it's good to see him getting, um, you know, making the breaks and and getting himself back to form just in time for the World Cup, really, because I think he could be, he could be that third man in the England midfield alongside um, Rice and Bellingham that could be, you know, a, a big way, a big part of how England uh, approach things in Qatar. Yeah, I certainly think that Mason Mount's performance last night has given England fans plenty of positivity going into the World Cup. But as Joel says, what's going to happen with Rhys James? We'll wait and see and we'll find out, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks whether he'll be fit for the World Cup. It's all going to roll round very, very quickly, which means that the games come thick and fast. And there are two more Champions League games tonight involving Premier League clubs. Tottenham and Liverpool are both in action and we'll discuss their games next after this. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. This is the final part of today's episode of Football Social Daily. We'll be back with AQA next week. All questions answered because we've got plenty to rattle through in terms of the on-field action. So if you've got any questions you want us to answer on the podcast, as we usually do on a Wednesday, we'll be back to it next week. And you can send them in to us on social media via Twitter. At FSDpod is the Twitter handle. You can also get us on Instagram and Facebook and our brand new Telegram chat, which if you do go to the aforementioned Twitter page, find the pinned tweet you can click the link there and it will take you to our telegram chat you just need to download the app from the apple app or the google play store get into telegram and you'll be linked straight to the group chat there where we continue the discussion beyond the podcast right games tonight in the champions league liverpool against rangers a battle of britain so to speak that's what it's been described as but liverpool have not been at their brilliant best this season they faltered they've been flustered they've stuttered there's been plenty of reasons, Joel, as to why that might be the case. They couldn't get the job done at the weekend either. They were beaten by Arsenal. No shame in that. Arsenal have been the form team and you know have led the way in the Premier League this season. How important is it for Jurgen Klopp to try and put that behind him now against Rangers tonight, a side who, let's face it, aren't going to go through in the group stages, but they'll, they'll, be, um, they'll be all over this at Ibrox tonight. They'll be absolutely bang up for this one. Yeah, first and foremost, they didn't just lose to Arsenal. They got well and truly beaten down. Like If anyone watched the game, they got absolutely dominated for so many large periods of that match. Um, it was pretty phenomenal. And obviously, they just lost Luis Diaz to injury until after the World Cup. As I said earlier, Trent Alexander-Arnold might be out for a few weeks. It's just when it rains, it pours. That's the kind of scenario they're in at the moment. They just can't seem to catch a break. But as we've known, this Liverpool rut, it's not just been this summer, it's been the last three years coming, I think, where the board have just not seen the storm coming, where every other club has strengthened, where they're the only top six club who have failed to strengthen, which is showing so much now. I mean, 14 points off the top in the Premier League is just... That was like pre-Klopp era in terms of how far off the pace they are at the moment. And the Champions League is a little bit of a different story. It always is a bit of a different story, though, when it comes to clubs who are doing pretty poorly in the league. I mean, I remember Di Matteo's Chelsea in the league. They basically sacked it off in the final two months because they just thought, well, the Champions League's our best bet of getting back in the competition and they won it. So I wouldn't even be surprised if Liverpool managed to go into the real depths of the competition because it's it's just an area of football where the best teams don't win it, whereas the Premier League is a true test of consistency, whereas knockout stage football is completely different. And 
I think in this game, if they can win it tonight against Rangers, who have been really poor in the Champions League so far, they've not scored a goal yet, conceded nine. Mm. I mean, it'll be hard for Liverpool not to at least come up with a decent performance and get a little bit of optimism in their play. But that's what we were saying two weeks ago when they beat Rangers. And we were thinking, oh, this might be a, a nice confidence booster to get that win. And suddenly they play against the top opposition and we're saying the same things again. Could be a confidence booster. Next week, they'll go into the next game. They've got Man City at the weekend. I mean, can you get a harder game than that to try and... Well, you know what? It could be the perfect storm as well, because if you can win that game, I think the players start to believe, but I just don't think they have enough against City. I don't think any team has enough against City. Um, and in the Champions League group, if Napoli win tonight against Ajax, they're at home, which I think they'll 100% win. It looks like Liverpool will probably finish second, and then they're going to face you know, possibly the likes of Bayern, Barcelona... Real Madrid and it's not the most ideal scenario to go into when your team is just completely got zero depth to it and the quality I mean where's Mo Salah at the moment mm. he's disappeared and I thought he came on as a substitute against Arsenal because I didn't see him all game I only saw him when he was coming off the pitch these are the players that you know we've been talking about for the last two or three years getting 25-30 goals a season and now yeah, you know they've gone missing in action they're the times when you need to step up so Klopp's got a big, I think I think for Klopp, he's so lucky he's got the World Cup coming up because now he can kind of accelerate towards the January transfer window if the board want to back him mm. um, and try and fix the issues that he's got because that midfield needs fixing ASAP. Well, you'd imagine most international players in the Premier League will be going to the World Cup, but there'll be a large chunk that won't. I mean, I'm not sure if Egypt have qualified for the World Cup, but... You know, Mo Salah, if if not, will get uh, a rest of a few weeks. But is it too easy, Marley, just to point the finger and say, well, they've lost Sadio Mane and the midfield's a little bit old now and tired legs with the likes of Henderson and James Milner and Trent Alexander-Arnold can't defend. Is it too easy to look at those as excuses? Uh, I don't think it's unfair because I think they're, they're reasons that would hinder most teams. I, th- I just think they haven't quite prepared for... for um those the things that happen after you sell Sadio Mane like yeah okay cool they've got Diaz but he's out till December by the way now I know so they're gonna have to rely on Carvalho or probably Jota actually you know he's not not exactly a bad guy to come in uh, Diogo Jota but you know there there was always a uh, a hole in that midfield I think from when they sold Wijnaldum I think that's just a bigger just as big a problem as as anything, really. Um, is that because he used to play for Newcastle? Yeah, well, because he was class. <laughs> yeah, he was he was a quality player though. Like he used to come up with with big goals at big times for for Liverpool. I don't think they've got any threat from midfield now. Nobody's bothered if nobody's scared of Jordan Henderson dribbling forward or James Milner or Fabinho. They're not going to score goals. So you're trying to you're looking at them and saying, well, what scares them? Because Thiago sits deep, so he, he's not causing you a problem because he's. He's always looking for passes ahead of him, so I think with um, with Liverpool that they, they may be trying a um, a different formation slightly and having the two sitting in midfield and trying to pack Jota, Firmino, Salah, and Diaz when he was fit, and obviously someone else now into that front four, make it front four rather than front three. But it's a whole different way of playing because this whole um, this whole cycle where Liverpool have been so good has been built around a four three three, and it's it's going to take time to get used to and with injuries and loss of form and things like that, it's not straightforward to uh, to fix it. But when they went and spent all that money on Nunes up front, you're just thinking, did they need him? Because I, th- I would say if you've got loads of money to spend, you, 
you chuck it all at Dortmund and try and get Bellingham. I think they panicked when Marnie went. They were trying to fill a void quickly. I, th- I think they panicked when City signed Haaland. And tried I think to that's the only toe reason. toe for toe with them a bit. Yeah, I think that's the only reason they went for Nunes. Because you're uh, thinking but about City, it now. City invested 12 months ago in Jack Grealish and mm. Liverpool didn't invest in anyone. Yeah, but they that that was in a different area, and it was a bit. I, of a... I get that, but I suppose the gripe from Liverpool fans is the fact that when they were the best team in England, and they finally won that league title at the end of COVID, and they had been in a couple of Champions League finals, winning one of them, the owners didn't strengthen enough. Whereas Manchester City, when they won a title, I distinctly remember Khaldun Amabarak, the the chairman, coming out and saying, "We are going to strengthen. We're going to spend money." <laughs> Liverpool's owners have never done that. They've never come and said, we're going to invest. Sir Alex Ferguson used to make a point of it all the time. When United had won a title, he'd go in the summer and he'd go and spend money, splash money on the best players he could get. And I just don't think Liverpool have done that. I think they've they've been happy with what they've got. A bit like what happened with Tottenham when they reached the Champions League final. Daniel Levy went, well, this team's half decent. They've got to the Champions League final. And they never invested and they never strengthened. And that is such a dangerous thing to do in football, to sit on your hands. Because all of the work that Klopp and Liverpool have done to get themselves into that position where they can compete, Manchester City have just gone, well, we're going to buy these players and we're going to get even better next year. And Liverpool have just gone, well, our players are good as well and we're going to back them. There's nothing wrong with that, but it very rarely works. You have to keep strengthening. And I think that's why Liverpool fans are, are annoyed about it. Because they've strengthened... £70 million worth in Darwin and yes, but they strengthened 18 months too late. Everything you said is completely true. It just reminded me of, you know, well, like you say, Sir Alex Ferguson after they won the Champions League, sorry, after they got rid of Ronaldo, they replaced him with Obertan and Owen. When Liverpool, <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a come down, isn't it? And then when Liverpool won the Champions League um, three years ago, they signed Minamino and Adrian. Like there's there's no correlation there. They need to keep strengthening, and they they sat they sat on the laurels. Yeah. I think the owners were thinking, oh my god, we're rubbing our hands together because we don't have to put any money into this now because Klopp's clearly got a really good team going. Mm-hmm. So we'll just get a little additions to the squad, and now all of those issues from those last transfer windows that you're seeing are all coming to the front now because that squad's aging. But there was rumours that Salah was going to go to Real Madrid and there were rumours that Sadio Mane was unhappy at Liverpool for for about 18 months to two years. It's so, true. So surely you... I mean, I think in the forward positions, actually... I don't Jota, think that was a Jota, major issue. Jota came in and was excellent. Yeah. Luis Diaz has come in and been excellent. If Nunez is a bit of a flop, which we don't know yet, the jury's still out, it's too soon to tell, then you just say, OK, fine, sometimes that happens. I mean, look, think of the amount of 70 million strikers Chelsea have bought and all been terrible. So I just think that maybe it is a case of they've not struck while the iron was hot and and, and they're kind of ruining that now. It is. Well, when you look at the Klopp era, which everyone likes to see is like the golden era, I don't think it's so much a golden era. I know they won, you know, the, the, the lot, they won the Premier League, but it's all once. That team should have gone way, way ahead of that. At one point, they were such a fair team in the Premier League and it was only pipped to the post by a team who's funded by a state. I mean, it's difficult to compete on that front when the team you're competing with is basically pulling money out of the back pocket. Whenever you go one, they go higher. It's difficult to compete. Mm. But the fact that they were losing titles by a point or goal difference, like we saw a, a couple of seasons ago, just think if Liverpool's owners were just that little bit more ambitious, put that 60 million extra into a transfer window, we could be talking about Liverpool having an extra three but Premier League titles. When was the last time Liverpool bought a player where you thought, bloody hell? They've signed him. I can't think of it. Because when Manchester City signed Erling Haaland, everyone went, bloody hell, they're going to smash the league. And what are they doing? 
They've got a machine goal scorer. No one, when they bought Nunez, went, oh, I'm a bit oh, yeah. worried about Nunez. Maybe Allison and, and Van Dijk. Well, well, maybe Van Dijk, but Van Dijk was at different. Southampton at the time. It wasn't like they've signed a bona fide superstar. Yeah. He came into Liverpool and was absolutely phenomenal and deserves immense credit. But it's not like they've bought someone to strike fear into the... And I'm not saying you always have to do that. But when you look at who City buy, they buy players and turn them into certain superstars. But when was the last time that Liverpool genuinely went into the market and bought someone and you thought, Jesus Christ, they've they've made a statement here. Manchester United do it a lot. It doesn't always work. Like they bought Casemiro, the for example. I just Cavani. don't think Liverpool have the capabilities to do it. I think it's shown. I think they probably wanted the likes of Kylian Mbappe, but they're never going to compete with the likes of Real Madrid and PSG for what they can offer but, him. But I, I don't get it. Like If they can afford £70 million on Nunez. But then Haaland, everyone says it's £51 million. It wasn't £51 million. I mean, if you want to go into the deep delves of what that deal was Liverpool couldn't compete with that kind mm. of deal it was impossible this yeah. is why I can I don't sympathise with them but I can I can imagine that it's United have been there the only difference was that Alex Ferguson was able to bring out more in these bang average players mm. Klopp's facing against a club which has one of the best managers we've ever seen yeah. and he's got unlimited cash mm. it's difficult to keep up in it yeah it's been a fascinating chat actually and speaking of Alex Ferguson his boyhood club the club he used to play for, Rangers, take on the club he had rivalry with as a manager, Liverpool. That's in the Champions League this evening at Ibrox. And we mentioned Spurs a second ago. They're playing tonight as well. They're at home, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the venue. as Frankfurt are the visitors from Germany. And we've spoken about Conte's European record, Marley, and stuff like that. And we've also spoken about how yesterday Chelsea's game against AC Milan was quite important with both sides poised on the same amount of points. Similar scenario here tonight. Sporting a top of Group D, the group that Tottenham are in. Tottenham are second, level on points with Frankfurt, who are third. So this is quite a big game tonight for Spurs, much as it was for Chelsea yesterday in Milan. Yeah, it is. Um, they need a win because you don't want to be going into the last two games needing to beat, you know, Sporting at, at home and then Marseille away. It's it's, it's not. Yeah. It's, it was always a very open group. This one, I, f- I feel like. Spurs are the, the strongest team in it, but the other three being so similar, in my opinion, in terms of like um, quality and, and and challenge, there's no obvious whipping boy in there. Um, there's no obvious sort of runaway two like there is in uh, in some of the other other groups. Well, got um, like a Bucharest or something or Cluj that everyone kills. Yeah, like a like a Victoria Pilsen in with Bayern, Inter and Barcelona, for example. <laughs> it's, it's not quite like that, so... You know, Sporting are, um, are doing well at the top. If I think if they beat Marseille, they're pretty much through. So uh, it's it's important for Tottenham to win this because they're at home. They've only scored two goals in three games in the Champions League so far, conceded two as well. Um, they've been going fine in the league, but it's just that European thing. I don't really know what what it is. I think Bermuda Triangle for Conte. This <laughs> I just I can't explain it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a strange one, but. The teams he's had, and I know we talk about this every time Spurs have a European game, so I'm conscious of banging the same drum, but the teams he's had, he should have done better. So when does it become mentally it's a thing problem <laughs> for, for Antonio Conte? Because he's managed Juventus, he's managed Inter Milan, both to Scudettos. He managed Chelsea to a title in the Premier League, playing wing-backs, Victor Moses and Marcos Alonso and on the, either side, the first won Premier the League title. Clubs of 30 Premier League wins as well that season. And uh, But yet, I think the furthest he's ever got is a quarter-final, the Champions League, as a manager. Mm. It's strange. I, I've read reports of Italian reporters of what like their perspective, obviously, because he 
played most of his managerial career in Italy, and they all just say that he all he was a manager who always liked a break. It's why his 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 league form was so good was because he he was able to prepare for the whole week for it. Whereas when he had that midweek game that he needed to kind of adapt to, it's almost like everything was put into the league and the Champions League was almost like an inconvenience for his team because he was so focused on trying to get league form in place. And then in terms of like not being able to adapt to other teams, like other teams sometimes do in the Champions League. I mean, we've seen some of the best English teams go up against some of the best European teams. I remember like a United team going to Barcelona and having to do two banks of four for the whole game. That's not a way that United play, but sometimes you just have to adapt to the way some of the best teams in the world do. Um, so I think for Conte, it has to be a him problem. I mean, all of the signs are there, aren't they? Like you just mentioned, that Inter Milan side a couple of years ago, like one of the best Inter Milan sides for a long time. That Chelsea side, like I said, first Premier League side to 30 Premier League wins at the time, that was a record. So he should have done way better, way, way better. I think with yeah with with Tottenham being at home tonight, I think that'll give them the edge. I think it was a bit of a uh, bit of a dour game in in Germany uh, when they last played. But I think with the um, with the home advantage, I think they they should get it done. And then it's then it's down to that um, winning one of the next two to to qualify from the group really. So I can see them getting it done. Um, then again, I did see them also going in going to Germany and winning, and and they were very underwhelming. But um, I don't think they can stay. I don't. I don't really believe in this curse thing. I think Paul Pogba voodoo thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe the. I don't know. Conte was born on an Indian burial ground. It uh, stopped him from. Uh, stopped him from winning the Champions League or getting anywhere in Europe. But yeah, I think they'll they'll get it done, and it'll be in their own hands in the uh, in the final two games. So should be all right. All right, Spurs versus Frankfurt tonight in the Champions League. And on tomorrow's episode of Football Social Daily, I'm sure we'll be looking back across those results from tonight. That is it from myself, Joel and Marley. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, hit subscribe and that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast again. We'll also be back later with Shots, our short-form Premier League podcast, looping you in with all of the news from the top flight that you might have missed. But until then, that is it. And we'll catch you next time on FSD. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.